Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 2nd, 2021, the $10,000 bounty edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning and Face the Nation, back, back after a hiatus ready. Yay. He's refreshed, ready to gab. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I miss you guys so much. I'm so happy to be back. And hello, all you listeners out there. This week, what a set of issues, man. Does the Supreme Court's late night decision not to block a near ban on abortion in Texas mark the end of legal abortion, at least at the national level in the United States? Then the longest war in American history ends tragically in Afghanistan, where after thousands of American deaths, hundreds of thousands of Afghan deaths, and trillions of dollars in U.S. spending, the country is once again in the hands of theocratic zealots. Then we'll talk to Atul Gawande about his stunning New Yorker article about why Costa Ricans live longer than Americans. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Late on Wednesday night, five justices of the Supreme Court, the conservatives minus Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, I should say, declined to block Texas's new abortion law, SB 8, from taking effect. The law bans abortions in Texas after six weeks and most cunningly, most sinisterly, empowers individual citizens to sue to enforce the ban and collect $10,000 bounties if they win their suits. The, the suits would be against anyone who helped someone obtain an abortion. Abortion providers in Texas have now stopped performing almost all abortions, any abortion after six weeks. And Emily, it's stunning. I mean, it is effectively potentially the end to what we understood to be the era of legal abortion at the national level in the United States. Can you start by explaining this law and what it is the Supreme Court did? Yeah, I mean, I am aghast at the way this is taking shape. So Texas passed a law that gives the power of enforcement of a six-week almost total ban on abortions to private citizens. And the sort of sleight of hand here is, okay, well, if there are no state officials who are involved in enforcing the law, then there's no one to sue. And the Supreme Court just went for that sleight of hand. They allowed that to end women's constitutional right to an abortion, people's constitutional right to an abortion in Texas without even ruling on the merits, without doing all the parts of hearing a case and receiving full briefing and listening to arguments and having to present fully developed legal reasoning. That is the rule of law. That is why we have courts. That is why courts are different from politicians. We've Many of us, I think, become more cynical about the divide between law and politics, but that doesn't mean there's no divide at all. And the Supreme Court, by abdicating its role and allowing the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to kind of play this game, because that was the court that canceled a hearing that the federal district court judge wanted to have to air all these questions— that is just a really outrageous development. And if you're okay with this because you just, you know, think it's okay to limit abortion, think about another right that you might want to enjoy and the way in which a law could play out in that context. So, for example, the Second Amendment. It is unconstitutional in this country to ban handguns if you're a state or a municipality. What if some blue state institutes a handgun ban in which all the enforcement is in the power of private individuals. That would be a kind of similar mechanism. 
I want to sort of make one kind of complicated legal point because it's been bothering me in the coverage. This shouldn't be a hard lawsuit to successfully bring. So we've had for a hundred years the idea that if you want to challenge the constitutionality or the legality of a law before it goes into full effect, before you have had your abortion clinic business shut down, you sue the state official. All that's at issue here is who you sue, and then there's a subsidiary question of whether the law is allowed to tell you you can only go to Texas state court as opposed to federal court. That's it. It's not that complicated, and the courts have many ways of dealing with this, which the Supreme Court has just chosen to punt on. And that is a really shocking part of this. But Emily, the Supreme Court will end up ruling on the legality of this law in so, at some point, because some abortion clinic in Texas will carry out an abortion after six weeks and will risk a lawsuit. And then and then there will be a this, that civil suit will be litigated up to the Supreme Court, won't it? Well, I mean, you have to be right about that, except so game this out. You're an abortion clinic and you just shut down because they all did. And the reason they shut down is all the liability that's entailed. If you open your doors today and you do a normal run of abortion procedures, you're at risk for a $10,000 judgment plus legal fees in every single one of those procedures, not just as a clinic, as a business, every single staff member who works there, the person who drove the patient to the clinic, whoever might have helped pay for them, even the lawyers who are defending you in court are all theoretically on the hook. And so I just am not actually sure how a clinic operates in a way that triggers a lawsuit that also provides for meaningful abortion care in Texas, right? So say some clinic operators like, okay, I'm going to do one procedure today. Everybody involved is going to know what the risk is. Well, then nobody sues because it's just a no. single procedure, right? Like, No, no, you no. Have you, ha you set up someone to make the suit. Like you, you hire, you get someone. You, you actually, have someone. You who have sues someone you. makes the suit. You yeah. could try to do it that way, and maybe that's somehow what they'll do. But there is just something so weird and wrong about this. It is not the way we litigate protected constitutional rights in this country, right? It's not that the private enforcement by itself is the huge problem, right? The Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, relies on a lot of private enforcement. It's only having the private enforcement so that there is no clear path, ostensibly, to suing a government official. That's the problem. The reason this effectively ends abortion in Texas is that six weeks is an incredibly short time period. Some pregnancy tests don't even catch pregnancies before six weeks. So essentially, this shuts it down. And there are, I think, six or so other states Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, that would probably almost certainly follow along with this. Um, oh, more than six. You like, think, right? You oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, that's going to be interesting to watch, but I would yeah. assume that those laws are going to start passing. T you know, p legislators are going to start lining up those bills tomorrow, today. Yeah. What I wondered, Emily, was what you thought of the the ruling in the majority that said that to prevail, you needed to have, um, you know, a strong showing that you're likely to succeed on the merits that a stay, um, there would be a, an irreparable injury without a stay. What does that exactly mean in terms of their ruling? And obviously, you've already pointed out that, you know, the line between jurisprudence and politics is disappearing. But imagine for a moment that that is a good faith argument. What, what exactly does it mean? 
So usually in a lawsuit, if you're the party that's arguing that you are going to be irreparably injured, you say something like, my business is going to have to shut down. I'm going to have to pay a lot of money. I can't exercise a constitutional right. So it would seem that all of the real questions about irreparable harm are on the sides of the abortion clinics and abortion providers that are challenging the law. On the other side is the status quo of abortion rights continuing in Texas as it has in the past. Now, if you think abortion is murder, then you think obviously that's an irreparable harm. But that's not how we've ever weighed the balance of harms here before. I mean, in terms of prevailing on the merits, until the Supreme Court overturns Roe, this law is obviously unconstitutional, right? Our existing law is that people have a constitutional right to an abortion for most of their pregnancies. Yes, there are some limitations, but nothing like this kind of ban. The What the majority, what the conservatives said in this like kind of dense one paragraph was, this is like a brand new question about how to get to court. It's all about the procedural parts of it. And that's true. But normally what you do is you stop a law from going into effect while you sort all of that out because it is novel and unprecedented, which is what Chief Justice Roberts said in his dissent. There is this weird thing, which I hope some GAFAS listener, I was looking at the Texas abortion database yesterday to try to understand this. There are about 55,000 abortions in Texas in 2020. According to the database that I saw, 90% of them were done within eight weeks of gestation. I mean, that's pretty typical. Usually, first trimester abortions are more than 90%. Right. But so if we're saying that 85% are after six weeks, but 90% are before eight weeks, that means that almost all abortions are between six and eight weeks? It's probably more like six and 10 weeks. Sometimes the two-week period, because of like when your last menstrual period gets dated, gets a little confused. But... It could both be true that they're almost all after six weeks because people usually often don't even know they're pregnant that early on. And it could also be true that most women get their abortions within certainly the first trimester, probably the first 10 weeks. This is not, of course, the only bit of abortion jurisprudence that's making its way. There is this Mississippi case, which has a 15-week ban, which the Supreme Court is going to hear. The Mississippi Attorney General just amended at their brief, I guess, and said, we're not just asking you to say this is okay versus under Roe and Casey, we're asking you to say that Roe itself is bad law, right? Yeah. And I mean, this was the case that was teed up for regular briefing and argument. And so whatever you want to think or feel about the Supreme Court potentially overturning Roe or taking such a huge bite out of Roe that it's effectively overturned, at least it was going through the normal Supreme Court route. What is so, to me, bizarre about this move to make this giant change through what's called the shadow docket, these emergency orders that aren't fully argued and briefed, you don't have to have like fully developed legal reasoning in your majority opinion, is that we've suddenly done a huge end run around this Mississippi case, and Mississippi is rushing to keep up. And this is just... (laughs) This is not how the rule of law is supposed to work, that you have a firmly planted 50-year constitutional right. Everybody knows the rules. People have opened businesses. People seeking abortions have relied on those rules. And then suddenly it all gets torn up, all those rules, and tossed away like confetti without any of the normal process. When there is 
There are so many legal routes available to stop a law from going into effect when it appears to be unconstitutional. Like, we know how to do that, and the courts are sort of pretending that they can't. They're like on some fainting couch about who is the proper defendant to sue, and it's, it's just a little silly. And isn't it implicit in the end run of this structure of this law, which is, as David um, pointed out, incredibly cleverly uh, constructed, isn't implicit in that, that they can't win on the merits, on the constitutionality, and that they've created something to basically allow the law to stand because it'll be hard to reverse through the courts. But implicit at that, isn't isn't it essentially that they've, that they're not making the case constitutional, uh, from a constitutional standpoint? And then, Adjoined to that is the question of what did you make of what Robert said when he said, even though the court denies the applicant's request, the the court is emphatically not saying that the law at issue is constitutional. Right. So, I mean, in answer to your first question, yeah, I think what's happening here is this like giant procedural end run around the merits. And if we're going to overturn, if the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe and allow for abortion to be banned almost completely, They need to, like, say that's what they're doing. We need to, like, have them spell it out. They need to put their names on it instead of just sort of, like, not acting. And the interim set of consequences here are pretty grave, right? So who knows how long it's going to take now to adjudicate the kind of case David was talking about, if that's the most likely thing that happens next. And in the meantime, all these abortion clinics are shuttered. All these women are people are having to travel outside of state to get their abortion procedures. As we were saying before, other states are going to um, pass copycat laws. You have this kind of big shift happening in the in-between time, which is, again, that's not how the rule of law works. Like, the court should decide things on the merits. We should have that reasoned set of arguments, that deliberative process, before the shift happens. Not like, oh, all these clinics have to close and everyone's life is thrown into chaos, and then the courts decide. And I don't know what to make of Roberts' statement at the end there. I mean, it's it's a little theoretical since he doesn't seem to have five votes for it. Well, one of the things that I find so unsettling about this law, as you say, Emily, there are other laws that provide private enforcement. This is a this is a kind of intrusiveness yes. into people's personal lives that's just shocking. Like the idea that there's going to be spying on people and then a chance to pounce on them legally and sue for gain and sue for harassment for other people's something something that's other people's business. Now I know of course if you're if you're someone who opposes abortion you don't think that abortion is other people's business. You think it's everyone's business because of how you conceive of what this this fetus is. But it's just simply terrible to imagine society where where all there there's a whole army of people who are out there looking and sniffing around to see whether oh did you give a ta- give you a ride to somebody to get an abortion did you do did, did, did that nurse did she help out at your abortion uh it's that's a, not a world that any of us wants to live in. Right. I mean, when I mentioned the Americans with Disabilities Act, the people who privately sue to enforce that are disabled people who, like, go to a restaurant and can't sit down or there's no, um, you know, ramp for them to enter. Right. They're they're personally harmed in this concrete, recognizable way that is like the normal way we talk about people suing to address harms and that this is a very different kettle of fish. And if you 
you know, aren't moved by the abortion context, imagine that you're a gun owner and your neighbor can sue to take your gun away from you. Isn't it that written, though, Emily, in such a way that it doesn't, um, while that may be the effective result, that what David just described of snooping on people, that um, part of one of the ways they've tried to avoid uh, dance between the raindrops in the way this was written is that it's only the abortion provider. It doesn't, it doesn't go after people walking in. It goes after the abortion provider. Uh, in the 10,000. Well, but it's not just the provider, yeah. right? It's anyone who's a quote, yeah. a better. So you're yeah. right. It's not the patient. Yeah. It's not the patient. And That's yes, my only, they did. My only point was just that. Yes. But, but you know, but, but if you're, if you're, if, if you gave your friend a hundred bucks to, to help them fund that abortion, are you? I think you are. And a better? Yeah, you yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not saying or, that the practical effect may not be what you described, David, but I'm just saying in the way it was written, it, it seemed to concede the merits and just try to kind of create something that would effectively allow abortion to be um, outlawed without uh, then being susceptible to judicial review. Let me ask a final question to you, Emily, on, on Roberts. It seemed in the dissents that they were, that, that the justices were saying, essentially, this is not only wrong on the merits, but it's, a, it's an abomination in terms of the court and what it should do and its role. Roberts is, uh, is very concerned with the court and its role in American society and that it not be completely downgraded into just another political arm. Were they arguing to him on that front? And do you think that that will matter in terms of the way he responds in the in the future in terms of whatever happens um, with respect either to this law or future abortion decisions? Well, yeah, I mean, he was on their side, right? He's in dissent with them. It's just that it doesn't matter anymore because there are five other conservative votes that he doesn't control. I do think it's of concern to him and that this, uh, you know, intense period of activity by this so-called shadow docket must be keeping him awake at night because it just doesn't, it's not how our normal legal processes work and it makes the court seem like very arbitrary. You know, in terms of, John, your point about how the law doesn't allow people seeking abortions to be sued, I think what's really crucial about that is this kind of long-term strategy of abortion opponents in court. There have been so many efforts to, you know, ban abortion in this complete way that activists really like, in these more incrementalist ways that lawyers tend to like. And one of the important principles that abortion opponents have developed is that it's important not to demonize people seeking abortions, that you want to be seen as protecting women who are seeking abortions, not as attacking them directly. And so you see that principle enshrined in this law. And I think that's like the kind of underlying aspect. And as someone who's watched this develop for a long time, like, it is really interesting to me to see this particular statute succeed. I mean, you know, a few years ago, a different Supreme Court, no way would this law be going to affect the way it is. But, you know, you throw enough spaghetti at the wall and then you get the people who want to do something like this. And here we are. I think we can't let this pass. We're in the context in the shadow of the COVID vaccination debate, like that many of the same people who are celebrating this intervention, this kind of nosiness and interference in other people's life and the decisions they're making with their body in another context are saying any interference, any demand that I you know, put a vaccine in my body is is a violation of my personal freedom at the highest order. That, that's a paradox that doesn't resolve itself. Yes, and we have a Supreme Court that has been reluctant to give cities and states and governments full power to try to stop the pandemic from spreading, right? I mean, that's another thing that's been happening partly on the shadow docket. Before we move on to the next topic, John, 
I'm just interested in your take on the politics of this. The, this was passed by the Texas state legislature. This law is not popular in Texas, even. The, these, the, the proposals to fully ban abortion, which, which the Texas law effectively does, are wildly unpopular nationwide, yet they are also uh, in place and will be in the place in majority of states if, if uh, the Supreme Court allows it. How to reconcile the political unpopularity with their political success? Yeah. And does is there a way in which which liberals or Democrats can anticipate any political gain from this that they so far haven't realized? So, yeah. So it's really two, two parts of this that are interesting. In Texas, the polling shows, I think, that a bare majority supports the fetal heartbeat bill. But quickly on that, there is also only 13 percent of Texans say abortion should never be allowed. So how to reconcile those two. The question then now becomes, as this gets covered, whether the facts of the case here, which is that this is effectively a ban on abortion, starts to be in the public consciousness and starts to change those that mindset, whether people recognize the disconnect between being in support of a fetal heartbeat bill, but also wanting to allow abortion in some instance. So the question, A, is how does this change in Texas? But then to your point, which is much more important, which is how is this going to affect the 2022 races? Polling shows that Democrats are more activated by the question um, of abortion. Now, conservatives have cared and have been on a long, many years march to change the court and make it more conservative. And they have been more eye on the ball with respect to that and politics than than Democrats. And so it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out. And also what we always see in these debates is while somebody may say they want to allow abortion rights, are they going to get activated by it? So while you may have more Democrats saying that they want to keep abortion rights, are they going to go to the polls and do all the things that would be necessary to change this? And finally, it really is going to matter on the presidential level. And we've talked about it a million times, but the way in which basically whether you're going to vote for or against a certain kind of judge becomes the only issue in a presidential campaign. And you could argue the signature moment in the last presidential campaign was that uh, was the night that Scalia died, when the Donald Trump wing of the party and the and the establishment wing of the party were joined, when Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump basically said the same thing, which is block any Obama uh, nominee and wait till we get in. Um, and that'll be totally consuming the next presidential uh, race, I would imagine, as well, this question of the court. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest this week's bonus segment, we're going to talk about what should children going off to college this year know. We, all three of us, are sending a child off to college this month, and we're going to talk about what they, not necessarily what they should know, but what children in general going off to college should be thinking about. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. You'll also get other benefits, like no ads on Slate Podcasts and bonus episodes of other shows. And just you'll get a chance to support the work we do here on the GabFest. So slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame. 
And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The war in Afghanistan began in October 2001, days after the 9-11 attacks, and it ended this week with a final U.S. military flight out of Kabul, a city already controlled by the Taliban, the very group that we expelled 20 years ago to begin the war, a group that was expelled and defeated but kept fighting. The evacuation of Afghanistan left some Americans behind there and also thousands of Afghans who had helped Americans. And 13 U.S. service members were killed along with more than 100 Afghans in a terrorist bombing during that exodus. So all of you listening, you've all been seeing the photographs, seeing the videos, reading the stories, uh, reading the terrible accounts of people trapped in Afghanistan who want to leave, reading the you know, hearing the former, the generals talking on cable, seeing the op-eds, listening to the president, we've all been bathed in this, in this defeat. And we wanted to spend the next segment just talking about our broader thoughts on what happened with this war and how we should view it and what we can learn from it. And was it doomed for us from the start? I want to start by saying I feel a tremendous sense of relief. And obviously, that's a, that's a really in some ways, callous thing to say, because there are 35 million Afghans and particularly Afghan women and girls who are going to be under the rule of a, of a theocratic misogynist, you know, bullies. Uh, and we've abandoned thousands of people, but I feel relief at the lifting of this delusion, like that we've been living in a delusion. We learned, we learned even very early on, but particularly when we all saw those Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post collected, that the military and the government of the United States were not telling the truth about what was happening, that they, we were losing the war, and that even the, the, they were denying the very evidence in front of their eyes. And it's to me, this was a war we were never going to win. We couldn't possibly win. Our choice was a kind of endless occupation which, uh, with, uh, with bloodshed constantly um, and danger and cost or to give up. And I, I am relieved that we gave up, but maybe you guys feel differently. And I'm interested in the, in how large your viewpoint is David in the, in the country, because you, you expressed personal relief. And then you said the lifting of this delusion. And what I, what's interesting to me is whether actually the delusion has been lifted or whether in the coverage of this, it is reanimating a lot of the mindset and, replaying debates in a way that actually animates the delusion and doesn't dispel it. I mean, obviously for many people, um, and I'll explain what I'm trying to say, but I, Ross Douthat wrote a fantastic column about this that captured much of my thinking. Um, but you know, in the, in the awful way in which this was, came to its end, some of which was contributed to by the, mishandling of the Biden administration, but also it was going to inevitably be awful in some way. Losing a war and pulling out in such a treacherous place was going to always be awful. And the question we all have to figure out is how much more awful was it in the way it was handled? Or 
if you want to make the case, could it have been even more awful in, if it was handled in a different way? But the way in which it's being debated, which is at the very, on this sort of like the, the last thing that happened is being debated, includes all of the insane claims and the sustenance or the sustaining of those insane claims that it seems to me are a roadblock to the kind of lifting of the delusion that you're describing, David. And I don't want to misinterpret what you're saying as being, you may have been just expressing a personal opinion. I'm wondering whether more broadly, how we think about this needs to get sorted, or else we're going to, um, it's actually going to be worse than than it was before. Well, I, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but there's certainly a move on the right by people who, when President Trump began this process of winding down this war, supported it, but who are now making the claim that this is a sort of stabbed in the back uh, quality that, that that President Biden has stabbed our troops who served in the back, stabbed the Afghans in the back, and that, you know, had we only just done one more season, one more year, had we not done it this way, it would have worked out. But that seems to me a totally politically and political and opportunistic. Yes. I I was not around in, during Viet, the Vietnam, the end of Vietnam, to know whether there was similarly political and opportunistic criticism. Yeah, there was. If the, only, if the generals had only been allowed to fight the war, we would yeah, have won in Vietnam. Yeah. And, and I guess what I worry about is... But no one thinks that today. I don't think any, I don't think any American about sits around... About Vietnam. About Vietnam. Oh. I don't think any American sits around and sort of thinks like, oh, that was a war we could have won. The, people are like, wow, that was terrible. We lost so many lives and what a tragedy. And I feel like that we're going to get there with Well, except, except if that belief was operational, shouldn't it have kept everybody's eyes wide open with Afghanistan? And as you described the Afghanistan papers, they are very similar in in thrust to the Pentagon Papers, which is there were all there was all of this cover up and shading and lying that allowed the occupation of Afghanistan to continue. That is that that you would think would be impossible if the lesson from Vietnam were learned in the way you just described it. But it's an, a lesson from decades ago. And we have to relearn lessons. Right. And I think the the sort of specter, especially in the first few days of like American rout and humiliation was hard to swallow, even right, like you could be upset by that, even if you didn't have a position on Afghanistan in particular. It just seemed like really like someone is dropping from an airplane and there is no control over the tarmac. And like it just that was so viscerally distressing that you could have a whole set of emotional and, and rational reactions to that that were divorced from these larger geopolitical yeah. policy questions. And it's also totally possible that the exit was botched and that the exit was necessary. Those two things can be possible. The way it's been debated, it's kind of been that, you know, it's gotten binary and unfortunate in the way it's politically been debated. But it's, um, I think you're exactly, um, exactly right. And back to your point, David, the, the people who supported the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, including all the members of the public, basically are, are not embracing the consequences of what rem- leaving actually means, which is that it was going to be messy. The Biden administration may have totally misunderstood the quickness with which the Taliban was going to rout the Afghan army and move across the countryside. And that, you know, may be one of their various failures in addition to communicating and being ca- caught flat-footed. But a lot of this is the consequence of, of leaving. I mean, a lot of the messiness and a lot of what we're all wrestling with is the consequence of a position lots of people held and that they they, including Donald Trump and including even President Obama. It's just that Biden bit the had bullet. The, he, had, he had the courage. Yeah, he bit the bullet. I mean, I, you know, he they, the people who are saying he's, there's blood on his hands and the investigations of this bombing will continue. And for the 13 service members and the 150 plus Afghans who died, it is 
you know, they've made a, a sacrifice in, in this moment of defeat that is, that is unimaginable. I can't, I can't even know how their families would feel. I didn't, I've never been in the military. I didn't fight. I didn't lose any relative or friend, but, but like remembering that the, that the, the blood that is on the blood is on every president's hands. Like that's right. what your, your job is to have blood on your hands. And what won't be on president Biden's hands is the blood of those American service members who would die. Had we stayed in and the, the tax money that would be wasted had we stayed in. And that's what we have to remember because it's just, it's, it's, it's hard in the, in the kind of the moment of tragedy to, to remember that. And the, the idea that the presidency means the blood is always on your hands is, I mean, that's essentially what my book was about. I mean, this is what a hard presidential decision looks like. It's not between like a thing that goes swimmingly and a thing that doesn't. It's always between something that goes wrong is ugly and where there's blood on your hands. And the question is just, is it as much as it could have been or is it less? I mean, this is this is and should be studied at the heart of the kinds of decisions presidents have to make and that they often don't make because you're always going to have blood on your hands. And that's the part that really needs to be stared at and that I'm worried isn't going to be because this is a template for the way we look and think about big, hard, complicated decisions in presidencies for a long time. And Biden had watched President Obama not make this decision and disagreed with that call at the time. And now he has the power to do it. I have a really basic remark, which is I've realized in myself in the past week that I understood in a complete way that we were actually having a war in Afghanistan, right? The words withdrawal, the words leaving, they're not the same as like, oh, we, this is a war and people were dying and 10,000 Afghans a year were dying. And the notion that you could sort of ignore it because it was really far away. And, you know, if you didn't have family in the military, it just seems sort of abstract. Like that all just got ripped away. And it is really terrible to watch a military defeat and to watch a war end in this way. But it reminded me of the cost of continuing the war. And I became more and more skeptical of the claim that there was some like low grade way to stick around because we were not a peacekeeping force. Well, also, don't forget, Emily, like one thing we have to remember is just because 10,000 Afghans are dying a year now doesn't mean they're not going to keep dying under the Taliban. It's not as though us leaving and the war ending means that it is peace for the Afghan people. True. It does. They, they will continue to suffer. But that said, Afghanistan can return to where it probably should be in the American mindset, which is like this pretty small country that is not strategically important to us that is poor and landlocked and it's basically as far away from us as any country can be. It doesn't have any critical resources that we need. It's not on any trade route that we particularly care about. It has no deep cultural or religious or economic ties to the United States. It is not important to the United States geopolitically. It was important for a moment because it was the haven for people who attacked the United States in 2001. For that brief moment, it was important, but it's well, otherwise it could not important. return to being important for that reason. It won't be. It won't be. Well, it's, you know, our ability to fight from a distance has improved. We have hardened defenses. Our greatest dangers in terms of terrorism from, from Islamists are internal. Insofar as their Islamic terrorism is a problem, it tends to be like much more focused on Europe than it is in the United States. It, I don't, there's no evidence that there's like a lot of training of operatives who are going to be trained in Afghanistan and snuck into the United States in the way there that did happen in this brief period in the 90s. 
I do not buy the idea that, oh, now that we've we've let the Taliban take it over, it is, it is going to be a hotbed of pl- people who are going to be a threat to the United States. I'm not saying there won't be people who are a threat to other people in the region or they won't do terrible things. I'm just saying I don't feel like the United States is threatened by Afghanistan in the way al-Qaeda did briefly threaten us and, and, 20 years ago. And one of the things we have to get right, both in thinking about this now and also in thinking about what our commitment should have been prior to the withdrawal is that American resources are not finite. And that's both public support, money, um, presidential and administration attention to the whole range of threats that that a country faces. To the extent you sink things into Afghanistan, you're not sinking them into other things that are greater threats and that are cyber for one would be um, now you've got to be able to do multiple things at once. But the benefit from extended um, engagement and in Afghanistan, when you could apply all those energies to other bigger challenges, seems to be a hard case to make. Can I make one final thought, which is the notion that Afghanistan, one of the things that also died in this defeat was the notion that any war could be kind of the quote-unquote good war, which is somehow sometimes what Afghanistan was referred to. When I wrote my piece on James Mattis, uh, he introduced me to the quote from Sherman that said, every attempt to make war easy and safe will result in humiliation and disaster. And that was very much in my mind as I was thinking about this departure relative to the super glib ways in which Afghanistan was once talked about contributed in part to the disaster that took place in, uh, in Iraq. And, um, that more broad point is that, you know, it turns out the United States can't just work its will despite the size of its extraordinary armaments, which we thought we'd learned after Vietnam, but we've now learned at least twice in Afghanistan and Iraq. Every now and then you read an article that makes you totally reassess your priors that upends your worldview. For me, most recently, this article is Costa Ricans live longer than us. What's the secret? It was in last week's New Yorker. It was my cocktail chatter last week. Uh, And now I'm glad to say we have the author Atul Gawande here to talk to us about it. Atul is a national treasure. He's a surgeon, a writer. He's the author of essential books, including The Checklist Manifesto, which is my favorite, and Being Mortal. He's also worked on remaking the American healthcare system, and he was just nominated by President Biden to be Assistant Administrator of USAID for the Bureau of Global Health to lead global health development for the U.S., which is great. So, Atul, welcome to the GabFest. Delighted to be here. I want you to begin with the astonishing, just the basic fact about Costa Rican lifespans. What are they? And tell us very briefly how they got that way. Yeah, so Costa Rica became fascinating to me because a generation ago, they had a life expectancy 13 years less than the United States. They have an income that has been around one-sixth of our national income per person. And over time, through a commitment to public health and primary care, they have achieved a life expectancy that uh, came to match the United States in the 1990s and has been exceeding the United States for more than a decade. At this point, their life expectancy is approaching 81 years, while we're at, um, we peaked at 79 years and have declined since then, since 2015. Um, And they continue to have this on the basis of a commitment to primary care and public health, which I'd be happy to unpack a little bit. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about how this works? (laughs) Well, so the key part about it is this commitment to braiding together 
your primary care and public health in a way that assures that everybody in the, you know, before they could even afford universal coverage for hospital care, they committed to the idea that everybody would have a primary care clinician and that clinician would be equipped with a team who could visit every person in their community at least once a year for a home visit to make sure that nobody fell through their cracks for their most important individual health needs and public health needs. And so that might mean that, you know, if um, maternal and child mortality were the top priority, well, they'd be making sure that pregnant women were all identified and were all in prenatal care. They weren't, you know, they'd make the home visit and identify if someone was falling through the cracks. They'd identify if middle-aged men were hadn't had a blood pressure check and a blood sugar check for years. They would make sure that there were weren't frail elderly who were neglected and malnourished. And the result of that has been just this steady improvement by making sure that the core investments went to the most important causes of death and suffering um, uh, for you know the population and the individual. It's a really such a simple thing. <laughs> You'd think our healthcare system would do this, but that, that is not how our healthcare system, or actually most around the world, work. So are the braiding together that you're describing, is that the, and help me with the pronunciation, is that the Ebayes? Um, yeah, the Ebayes, Ebayes system. Because I was remembering during a period of COVID when, when there was vaccine hesitancy in some urban communities, the community health workers that existed there were the kind of bridging mechanism between the public health message to get vaccinations and the recalcitrant communities that were, you know, untrusting of, of vaccines, and that they were this great bridge. Is that a, an, an analog that is in pockets of the states? Because one of the things you argue in the piece is you could do this in certain states and communities. And I'm wondering if there is an existing, as rickety as it may be, an existing system in the states where you would have this braiding together, where you could try to reach the outcomes that you write about. Yeah, we have a fraction of the public health infrastructure that Costa Rica has, but the infrastructure we have um, includes often nonprofits and uh, folks outside the public health system who are doing community health work. By community health work, we mean people who actually go door to door in the community. I stood up um, uh, with the state of Massachusetts a vaccine. Uh, uh, vaccination operation um, with a organization we founded called CIC Health. And it, uh, it was to fill in gaps. Massachusetts has an exceptional public health system, you know, compared to the U.S., but we don't have enough community health workers to remotely reach out in the way that, um, uh, that we would need to, to find people who are missing for vaccination, make sure they understand it, you know, reach out in multiple languages, do all that kind of stuff. And so we ended up fielding a whole army of folks and we would visit 10,000, knock on 10,000 doors per week and get vaccination out the door. Partners in Health is another nonprofit that would be uh, sent out to make sure that contact tracing happened. We don't have that systematized. We have public health officials, but not not nearly the capacity to make sure that they can connect door to door. It sounds incredibly expensive when you say, "Oh, we want to have enough to go." You know, Costa Rica—it's one for every four thousand people, and everybody in their neighborhood knows who their person is. And yet, that system 
of knowing who that person is and making sure they're connected into your primary care clinician can be done in a country with one-sixth of the income we have and as a result have lower cost care, better results, more prevention, and when COVID rolls around, they already know how to either text you or call you and tell you, here is your appointment for your COVID vaccination. You know, that's the way it works there. Here, we, we have to, you have to, you had to log on, you know, press refresh a million times, even now to go get a COVID test or get a vaccination. People don't know how to do that if you decided you want to do that. So a tool, one of the things that's striking to me in this piece is the idea that Costa Rica is not just an outlier compared to the United States, but it's an outlier compared to the world. It's not as though what Costa Rica is doing is also being done by tons and tons of other countries that are not the United States. So why is it that only one country in the world has figured this out? You would have thought that other places would would get to it, even if we here in the U.S. haven't gotten to it. There are, in fact, a few outliers, Thailand and Sri Lanka, that are examples. They aren't quite at this extraordinary level of life expectancy. But the interesting thing is that many single-payer countries have committed to making sure there's hospitalization, committed to making sure there's primary care, but they have not braided together the idea that public health is part of it. You know, most countries in the world have followed the model that we follow of you keep a separate CDC from your healthcare delivery system, right? We have a separate Medicare from our CDC. In Costa Rica, they combine them together. It would be the equivalent of saying the CDC will set the priorities for the Medicare delivery system, the insurance system, and make sure it covers the core components and measure every year whether we're actually saving lives and improving people's suffering. It's not the standard approach that we've taken because many places around the world have bled public health dry. We all want to make sure that the you know, the immediate need, the emergency care, the operation. I'm a surgeon, right? Cover me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to save your life tomorrow. But, you know, the that ordinary, everyday stuff of primary care and public health really is the highest value that we could create. I mean, once you explain the idea of the CDC taking over priority setting for doctors and insurers, I understand why we don't have this in the United <laughs> States, right? Because it would it would change all of the power dynamics and it would both threaten private industry and also the power of physicians, which, um, you know, would seem to take a backseat in Costa Rica to some degree. They're working with the public health workers, but they're not completely making all the important decisions by themselves. Um, I mean, is, is that part of why we don't have this? And does that seem like a kind of insurmountable barrier? I don't think it's an insurmountable barrier. I, I, I don't know that it's entirely why we don't have, yes, there's the power dynamics and how money plays out and all of those kinds of things. But the reality is, you know, we are in the midst of a massive experiment where we've doubled life expectancy in the last century, right? We've gone from the United States in 1900 had an average lifespan of, of surviving in your mid-40s. We now, if you can get the right care and serve the right community needs, we can all on average live into, on average, you know, into our 80s. Nowhere in the world has perfected it. I mean, I describe lots of things that aren't going well in Costa Rica. Um, there are still waiting lists for their secondary and specialty care and things like that. I think we're in this innovative phase of learning how to support a society that has 80, you know, 
climbing up to a 100-year life expectancy and enabling across your entire lifespan all of the things you need when you're a child, when you're in your working years, when you're in your retired years, and when you are going to spend 10, 20 years dealing with, well, actually probably half of your life dealing with some chronic illness and needing to incorporate that in what to do. So is there resistance? Yes, because the system we built in the 1950s was about, let me rescue you. I'm going to give you your, make sure you have your penicillin. I'm going to make sure you have your emergency appendectomy. We have a system built on rescue, now building that system to manage a lifespan that we need to be by your side for 80, 90, 100 years. That's an incredible thing. And I don't think it's simply the power of money. Um, it's, a, it, it's a lot of it is our collective power of imagination and our demand that we should all deserve this. Okay, just, to, just to dig on that lifespan question for a second the, the, over this past century, don't you think there's a problem, which is that we fundamentally misunderstand where lifespan came from, that actually these ex- that we're living longer not because of the surgical interventions that you might be doing you know, in someone's life when they have a cancer, which is great and they will extend their life, but because of all these public health measures. But Americans fundamentally don't understand that it's the public health measures, the cleaner water, the vaccinations, the improvement in, in maternal health and, and, in, and in infant mortality that have made it that, it, that actually our lifespans are already a product of public health, but we attribute it somehow to physicians. Well, so um, I don't think it's quite the either or you, you, you're painting here. Come right? on, so, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, we the, only do either or here. <laughs> the public health components have been absolutely critical for child survival. That has been crucial. It's vaccines. It's, you know, we're in danger in the current sort of vaccine uh, uh, resistance and battle in, to undo the the childhood vaccination system that has enabled us to get through measles, diphtheria, polio, smallpox, all of those kinds of things. If we put that at risk, boy, the, the foundation of our system wouldn't work. Then there's adding years to your life after age 40 or 50. And that's come from first the existence of exceptional primary care and then the secondary care that can address both preventing cardiac disease, preventing cancer, and then also dealing with it as time goes on. And so, you know, in surgery is a great example. There's a core uh, of about 50 operations that are as valuable to your life as being vaccinated. Those include um, cesarean sections for women who have, you know, serious complications in childbirth to um, cataracts late in life, which about, you know, 10% of Medicare patients will have a cataract operation in a given year that uh, incredibly improves their life, right? So there's a mix of those things. And that's where the power of saying, where should these, you know, the equivalent of, should the CDC, our public health, our population health outlook guide how much of that surgery and our efforts uh, should be included? I'll, I'll give you one other example. We have had a massive increase in spending on back pain. Now, we spend more money on back operations than any other category of operation. I did. Yes. And we have had zero effect in reducing <laughs> back disability in the United States. Disability from back pain is worse than ever. So what's the disconnect? No one is, no one is asking, are we getting the outcomes we need and are we prioritizing what we need to do? That, it's a freaking failure. <laughs> 
if this mindset needs to change from a medical mindset of rescue to one of resilience, is there are there any grooves being created by the response to COVID-19 that can be used, use the learning that's come from this emergency situation to grab gains and improve things? Is that is there any way that can be done? I'm looking for a, ho- a note of optimism here. Huge opportunity, huge opportunity, right? <laughs> um, you know, there's been this huge injection of dollars in order to roll out everything that we're doing. And, you know, we already saw, saw this start to happen. You know, for example, I talked to a team in California that had hundreds of people hired. Uh, it's called the Public Health Institute. They hired hundreds and hundreds of people to be the contact tracers to track down, the, you know, get in contact with everybody, uh, family members around, uh, around making sure when you test positive for COVID that you have a, the appropriate response. They described to me a teams that were over 90% bilingual or multilingual. Build in that infrastructure so that you have those contact points and they are then deployed to where the greatest needs are. That infrastructure needs to be built and maintained. We actually, under the American Rescue Plan, have the dollars in cities and states to do this. Cities and states can choose to use those dollars to build this capability and sustain it and have it apply to COVID when there are outbreaks. But hey, you know, we have 4 million people who are infected with hepatitis and we happen to have vaccines and treatments that could eliminate hepatitis, as I write about. So you can redeploy that capability to keep solving problems at very low cost uh, compared to waiting for the billions of dollars we spend per year on the hepatitis uh, liver transplants. Atul Gawande's article in the New York New Yorker is Costa Ricans live longer than us. What's the secret? It's so good. Check it out. Atul, thanks for coming by. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Let's go to cocktail chatter. If you're having a Costa Rican cocktail of some sort, from some very delicious, healthful cocktail, what will you be chattering about? John Dickerson, you're just back from some vacation, so you probably have like piled up cocktail chatters. I do. Um, uh, although we'll have to, you'll have to um, listen to them in future weeks because there was um, some news yesterday on a story we talked about before, and that I worked on for sixty minutes about Elijah McLean. You may remember that he was the the twenty three year old massage therapist who was stopped on the street by the Aurora police. He wasn't doing anything. We know that he wasn't doing anything because there's footage of it, and in which he's. Um, manhandled by the police in which he pleads for, um, you know, to be let go. And, and basically they treat Elijah, who is 140 pounds and looks like a matchstick. They treated him like he was a linebacker for the Broncos after a chokehold and the administration of ketamine for someone uh, one and a half times his weight. He went into cardiac arrest. He died six days later. Um, and when they basically declared him to be brain dead. No one was charged. And part of the reason no one was charged was something called excited delirium was uh, put into the melange of things that were uh, possibly contributed to his death, which allowed the um, DA to say that nobody should be charged. Well, now the attorney general for the state of Colorado has, um, uh, and a grand jury indicted three officers and two paramedics. And so we will see now, uh, 35 counts, I think it was, um, we will now see whether we'll get some clarity, hopefully, um, into this issue, but it has much bigger ramifications because excited delirium, uh, which is a kind of, according to medical experts, a phony diagnosis, is used as a post hoc way to cover up excessive force. So anyway, there was that um, important development in that case. That is really interesting. Emily, what is your chatter? 
I am fascinated by an article in the Upshot in the New York Times by Jed Kalko called The Downtown Decade, and it's about where people moved in the 2010s looking at the census. And what the data shows is that the fastest growing neighborhoods were suburbs on the edges of metropolitan areas, but also people moved back into downtown and central districts um, at a pretty high rate. And so you see a kind of bouncing back in the data of people moving into dense urban neighborhoods. So The graph in the piece shows that there are more people living in those dense neighborhoods in 2020 than there were um, back in 1990, and certainly more than in 2010, where there was this big dip. As someone who roots for cities, and I think because I grew up in Philadelphia at a time where the city just seemed to be like potentially on its last legs, I have a kind of perpetual insecurity about this. I was excited to see this. I realize it's complicated. Um, People moving in, making neighborhoods more expensive can push other people out. But I generally am um, pleased whenever I see data that suggests that people are willing to live in denser places because of all the vitality that that brings with it. So anyway, I was just really interested in all the numbers in this piece. My chat are two quick things to read. Uh, One, I stumbled at Politics and Prose on a novel titled The Very Nice Box. Oddly, it has two authors, Laura Blackett and Eve Gleichman. I have no idea how they work together because it really doesn't feel like it has two that's authors. That's so unusual now it that I so think It is so unusual. Oh my yeah, God, it's really unusual. And it's a very distinctive voice. And it's, it is a absolutely delightful little novel about a woman who works at a company that's very much like Ikea. She's designing. She's designing a box, The Very Nice Box. And about her um, encounter with a male coworker, and it's about male privilege. It's about what life in a working in a company is like. It's um, it's about it's about grief and loss. It's a wonderful, charming book. I I was just it, it's been such a treat to read it over these past few days. The very nice box it's called. And then totally different direction. There's an article in the Atavist you may have seen in your Twitter timeline if you're a Twitter person. The Atavist has an article called The Girl in the Picture, and it's about the death of a girl named Andrea Bowman and the case that swirled around her. She's a girl who disappeared in Michigan uh, 30 years ago, and what happened to her is shocking and unsettling, and it's explored uh, with great intensity by Niall Capello. So I recommend that as well. Listeners, listeners. You sent us one that maybe maybe there are so many good listener chatters that you sent to us at, at Slate Gabfest, but I feel that Carl Richter's chatter today may be the most designed perfectly for John and Emily of any chatter that there's ever been. So let's hear what Carl Richter's listener chatter is. Hi, Gabfesters. Carl Richter checking in from Texarkana, USA. I'm on the Arkansas side at the moment. I, like many people, have been grieving the recent loss of singer-songwriter Nancy Griffith. I was looking around online for some of her performances and came across a compilation on YouTube of all of her performances on David Letterman shows over the span of almost 20 years, starting back in the late 1980s. It's a really enjoyable look at the whole breadth of her remarkable career. It's a great way to review 
what she did or get an introduction to it. And I've been recommending it to everyone. The video's not always so hot, but it sounds good, and it's well worth 90 minutes of your time. Loved this so much. I mean, it will surprise no one that Nancy Griffith was like the soundtrack to, I think, my junior year in college. And um, she's so charming back in 1988 when she first shows up. And David Letterman is completely smitten with her and then basically just has her back every time she has a new album or even like a, you know, a VHS recording of a concert. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, Other Voices, Other Rooms was a... Um big um and important cd in the uh, uh, for a period of um my life and the her rendition of john prine's speed of the sound of loneliness is a really beautiful one not every cover of us of an artist you like pays tribute to the artist in the way that one does to prine it's great that is our show for today. The Gap This is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Bridget, especially this week. So many good insights about this abortion case, Bridget. Thank you for that. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson back. So nice having all gang back together. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? All three of us are sending a child off to college or have sent a child off to college this year. Uh, I, well, I sent two, but a new, sent a new child off to college. So my second kid also went off to college and started classes this week. Emily's second kid also just started classes yesterday, probably. John uh, has a child who's going off to college. So one of you, I don't know who it was, proposed that we talk about what they really need to know. I want to hear John's take on this. I think it was me, and I want to know the answer. I feel like you have answers. Like, you'll be the one who's been the most thoughtful about this. Well, I I don't know that I've been thoughtful. I've definitely been the one thinking about it the most. Um, uh, In part because, and I don't know if you all experienced it this way, I mean, it's obviously like a huge chapter is closing. It's a massive transition moment. And I, I always felt, much like I feel this way about life itself, is like there's going to be time to sort of do a final assessment before the child or the children go off to school. And all the stuff you let slide and the lessons you didn't teach and the uh, kind of shirt tails untucked uh, uh, are all going to get tucked in. It's all going to be sorted and nice and neat and tidy before this moment comes. The moment when basically they will now spend more days um, you know, not in your company than in your company. And it was basically the reverse of that before. I mean, unless they move back home um, and that has its own dynamic. So, uh, but, so yeah, a lot of weight on the scale here, but I don't know what I would say because I guess what I would say mostly is that basically you're getting a chance to rewrite the instructions of your life and to think about it in that context more to o- overweight that portion of it that's not academic which is like you're learning and teaching yourself how to have friendships uh, and how to accept failure and how to deal with adapting and how to actually take risks. What it means, like people say, take risks. You know, what would you do if you if you didn't have to worry about the consequences and all these stupid things that get put on motivational cat posters? But you're actually teaching yourself what that means for you. 
I don't know, to recognize that authorial intent would have been useful for me. I don't know, maybe my son has that all in his head. But to re recognize that, I think, is one place I've started when I've been trying to think about this. I, uh, it's funny, I may, thinking about this actually made me send a text to my son who just started college yesterday, uh, where I tried to convey one point to him <laughs> because I did, I did realize something that I wish Wait, I'd said Wait, it's not to. too late. He already <laughs> went, but I could still offer some advice. Uh, I guess the two things, the two things that I think about, one which, which, which I wish I'd known at the time, one was that everyone is as confused and out of water as you are. So remembering that and remembering that, that your feelings of alienation and homesickness and, and chaos and confusion are being shared by everyone. And so don't, don't sort of walk around feeling like you're the only person like this. We are all like this. We were all like this at this moment. That's number one. And the other is that I really wish I'd known. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.